I was recently very lucky and blessed to have a wonderful conversation with Vincent Trewell. He is the host of The Weird Part with Vincent Trewell. Go look it up. Listen to it when you're done with this. We decided to come together have a conversation, and release it on both of our platforms in our own way. I have given a little extra time to let the episode resonate through Vincent's channel and maybe help drive a little traffic and let everyone get a good taste of his show. I've been holding back on this, and with the holidays approaching, I thought it would be great to do a two-parter, the first ever two-part episode of Paranormal Patio. So that's what you're getting right now. This is part one. It's going to be released on Christmas Eve, so if you're listening to this, hey, it's Christmas Eve. And uh, coming back to part two will be on New Year's Eve, so it'll give you something to do over the holidays. So, let's get into it. You're listening to the Paranormal Patio Podcast. Pull up a chair. Welcome back to Paranormal Patio. As always, I'm Jason, but you knew that when you clicked the button to listen to this wonderful show, this great episode with my guest, Vincent Treewell. Vincent, welcome to the Paranormal Patio. Thank you. Happy to be here. I certainly look forward to it. The way this came to be is I was listening to one of the episodes of Paranormal Patio, and you had a fascinating guest on who is a in-the-real-world cave explorer who goes into caves and, you know, has all the gear and the ropes and things and really explores caves. And also there was a lot of talk about hollow earth theory. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about the hollow earth theory and what it involves? Sure. Well, there's a lot of different directions you can go looking into hollow earth. There's the idea that there exists an entire inner earth as in the, the globe of the earth is hollow and the interior hosts many different civilizations. There's also the possibility that there are pockets or large tunnels and caverns that extend well into the Earth that each house different civilizations. And there's my favorite theory, which is the one I kind of lean on, that all of these interactions that people have had with entities from the Hollow Earth are non-physical. And that's just kind of the way that I have oh, wow. justified it in my in my experience, just because it sounds a little less crazy, but somehow also crazy. And so, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that honestly makes a lot of sense. I think with some things that we're going to get into a little bit later, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that. Wow. Um, I liken I it to. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I liken no, it to. Um, Basically, like the alien abduction stories from the time of the uh, Venusian visits, where every alien abduction was people from Venus. There was that little window there. And they would take people to Venus and show them their civilizations and talk with them. They would meet other Venusians. Obviously, what we know now is that you can't go to Venus because your physical body would, you know, just turn to ash almost immediately. So, to me, that 
entails a non-physical visit to another plane of existence where you could be in this place. And I just think it's very similar to stories of the Hollow Earth, including my favorite Hollow Earth story, which you know is Edadorpa. And I think that it is very much in the same vein. Yes. that I was just going to add that that's a very good analogy because I know the Soviets sent a couple of probes to Venus in the 70s and they melted within minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the visitors, like Adamski's uh, Orthon, look exactly, exactly like normal human beings you might pass on the street, except they're usually better looking. But um, <laughs> they, they wouldn't evolve like that, you know? Correct. So that would be, as a non-physical experience, is, a, to me, a hell of a lot more realistic. It's also fascinating with Edadorpa that it's Aphrodite spelled backwards, right? And Aphrodite is the corresponding name for Venus. So it's just, it's yeah. right there in, in the name. You know, that's what really uh, pushed me in that direction. Yes. And could you elaborate on Edadorpa? I don't think most people, including myself, know a whole lot about what that is. Well, I could point you to uh, joining my Patreon and watching the documentary, uh, but I won't do that. <laughs> See what I did there. I'm already a member. I know. I have it on my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, basically, the story of Edadorpa begins with a man named Llewellyn Drury, and he's visited by a mysterious old man in the 1800s. And this old man says, I'm going to tell you my story, and in 30 years, I want you to publish it. And the man agrees, and it begins this sequence of visits from the man that calls himself I Am the Man, or the man who did it, and he tells a story of how he infiltrated a secret society in New York. It doesn't say what the name of the society is, but when you do a little digging, you find that it's most likely the Freemasons, and that I Am the Man is most likely William Morgan, and you can dig okay. into the William Morgan affair pretty easily. Pretty interesting oh, yeah. time in history. Then he lays out the story of what happens after he is kidnapped. He's aged in a magic ceremonial ritual uh, around Fort Niagara, and then he is taken on a journey to Kentucky and finds a cave entrance and a spring where he is guided by a sightless, eyeless humanoid that has emerged from said cave to the <laughs> hollow earth. And he faces all these trials and receives all of these prophecies. And several years later, he comes out and he tells a story to Llewellyn Drury. And if you go by the narrative of the book, Jury decides he can't publish this. He hands it off to John Yuri Lloyd, and John Yuri Lloyd is a pharmacologist in Cincinnati, pretty big at the time, and he publishes the book. It's his first novel, and it's kind of weird that a pharmacologist would publish a Hollow Earth story. So, I don't know. To me, it could very much be based on reality, especially when you look at a lot of the facts like I have and, and do a little research and boots on the ground type of work with it. So that's basically Edadorpa in a nutshell. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. There are just so many rabbit holes there. About what time period would the book have been published? It was published in, I believe, 1895. Which is 30 years after the old man first 
came to him? Correct. So that would be okay. 65. William Morgan disappears, I believe, in 25. So that leaves that time window for this man to have all these experiences and make his way back and for whatever reason choose Llewellyn Drury to be the bearer of this tale. It's one of those things that is, whatever you think of it, it's something and it's fascinating. I definitely need to catch up on that and fall down some of those rabbit holes and see what's going on with that. Wow. You'll find me down there. I've been living in them for several (laughs) years now. (laughs) I believe it. I believe it. (laughs) Your guest had done, the other week had done caving do you have any cave experience? Nothing in the same vein as Jason Joyce has, the, the guest that you that you mentioned. Um, you know, I've done some touristy caves, and I've done some really uh, simple, easy caving uh, in Kentucky. and Oh, and in Illinois, I guess. Um, so nothing where I felt like I needed to have a rope and, you know, flares and all of that type of stuff. Uh, helmet definitely would have been a good idea in a couple of them. But, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm tall and I've got a giant bulbous head. So it's going to happen <laughs> whether I have a helmet on or not. So, yeah, I, I've not had any uh, visitors from the inner earth in any of the caves that I've been in. But you get the same vibe that you read in all of these stories. Yes, I have. My, my experience is extremely limited. I've been to the Cave of the Mountains, but it's still and an abandoned lead mine that they do tours on in Wisconsin But as a youth. But you do get that vibe. It's different underground. And as you emphasized in that episode, we know more about far reaches of space than we do about what's a few miles straight down. Yeah. And that's, you know... I have practically no caving experience for similar reasons. I'm a stout fellow and I don't want to get stuck in anything. And I like the space program. I think cave exploration is a great, interesting thing for other people to do. And I'll just hear their results. And, you know, <laughs> I don't need to get firsthand on that. You know what you like really I, need to do, though, is you should definitely go to Mammoth Cave. Because for me personally... Coming down into the first main dome of Mammoth Cave really opens your mind to the possibilities of what we're walking over every day. You walk in and there's this enormous chamber and the ceiling several stories high. It's all opened up. You're underground and seeing all of this. And I think that you would really benefit from going in somewhere like that that is safe and you're, you were, you're not going to be in danger of a cave-in or something like that or hitting your head and passing out and, you know, whatever. I think Mammoth Cave would be great for you if you're interested in Hollow Earth stuff, just because it really does open your mind up to the possibilities. Oh, yes. That, that sounds like an excellent idea. Definitely something to check out. Yeah, because there is great areas underground which are very limited how much they're explored the one thing i've noticed is that no matter how deep we go we never don't find life yeah you know in all the mining and all the exploration there's never been a point at which okay nothing lives here there's always stuff living down there absolutely and that's that in itself i you know life continues to evolve and adapts to its environment so you know if something's been living down there for a million years we have no idea what's down there. I, I'd say that's that's pretty much inarguable. Yeah, um, for sure. There's a lot of underwater rivers and things where these tours operate now, especially in southern Indiana. 
Uh, I think I've been to two or three down there where you get in a boat and you go into this cave and there's, there's always the, uh, the blind fish and blind lizards that are completely white or see-through just that have adapted to live in that environment. And that just goes to your point that no matter where you are, there's, there's going to be some sort of life. And it's, it's fascinating to think. I mean, and like Jason said about finding shark tooths um, under Kentucky, you know, there's these pockets that exist under the ground where if there's not life now in the same sense, at one point there was, and if there's these pockets that are isolated, there could still be thriving ecosystems that we don't know about that have adapted to live in that environment and carried on. And that is absolutely fascinating to me. Yes, yes, it is. And I... I won't deny there's like, I, I love to read about it and I love to hear about it, but there is no way in hell I would put on a scuba suit and like actually go into an underground body of water just because of sheer cowardice. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I couldn't do it either. If, if something touched me, I just, I'd probably die of fright before I, I, anything else happened. Yeah, yeah. So I'm yes, curious though, sharks. because I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm curious because no, no. I asked Jason, I said, if you got to a point where you were stuck and you couldn't go back, would you keep going or would you sit there and wait for help? I'm going to try to, to live. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't expect that whatever I'm going to go forward is going to probably be interested in helping me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, that's my take, but, um, you know. I don't really go into situations like that because, wow, it's just, yeah, a pretty, pretty terrifying environment, I would say. Sure. Even if the albino blind sharks don't get you, I mean, something else might. Um, yeah, we've all seen the movies. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think that stuff is scary because it's kind of innately, you know, we're, we're not the alpha species there, the alpha predator. The apex predator, I guess, is what I'm looking for. Whatever else actually lives there is definitely the apex predator. Sure. And I don't like not being the apex predator. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's just me, but yes. <laughs> you know, the show, we speculate about a lot of stuff. Nothing's written in stone. We're, you know, two people talking. But you have a particular cave that's fairly close to your... um a place that you've spent a lot of time. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh, which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we start with Burroughs? Okay, yeah. So I know a little bit about Richard Burroughs, and none of it's good. Uh, <laughs> so he's he was a man that was born or lived in uh, Richland County, Illinois, which is about 45 minutes from me. And it's actually, I was born in uh, Alney, which is home of the white squirrels, if you're uh, – into that sort of thing. And uh, so... so I, I've just got to stop you right there. <laughs> what do you mean, home of the white squirrels? So just elaborate. There's this weird sort of civilization of albino squirrels that live in Alney. There are tons of them. And you go to, like, the Alney City Park and you can, you know, sit there with your drive through burger and fries and watch the white squirrels running around and uh, climbing trees and stuff. It's It's weird. 
wow, okay, uh, well, I learned something today. Um, I'm going to have to look that up. That is fascinating. Yeah, and they're not all white squirrels. Like, there are also uh-huh. gray squirrels and, and red squirrels, but there's a significant white squirrel population. And if you get caught killing them, I'm pretty sure you get in trouble. Oh, yes. Uh, they're probably highly endangered. I'm just surprised there's, like, sometimes there'll be albino deer or something. Yeah. Or a bear, but it'll just be, like, one. There usually right. isn't like a breeding population. That's that's fascinating. Well, and it's weird too because they're squirrels. You know what I mean? They're I mean, how many squirrels die every day? And they rely on that gray fur for camouflage in the trees. And these white ones stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, luckily we don't have a lot of large birds of prey. You know, <laughs> so but it is weird. Yeah. They are cool. Uh, Definitely look it up. (laughs) Yes, I certainly will. So anyway, I was born there. I was born amongst the white squirrel people, and uh, (laughs) I I didn't grow up there or anything. It's just the hospital that I was taken in. And uh, Richard Burroughs... Back, I don't remember the the day or the time frame. Um, says that he is out looking for arrowheads, stumbles into this cavern, and he finds what's been called now Burroughs Cave, um, which has all these artifacts from different time periods and different civilizations around the world. People are pretty quick to dismiss them all as phonies, and it's possible, you know, that they are. It's also possible that. It's true and untrue that there are actual artifacts as well as, uh, you know, engineered artifacts, so to speak. I, I just want to butt in for a second. Yeah. Because in the second episode ever of The Weird Part, I talked about Burroughs Cave in the context of anthropologist Dr. Joseph Mahan, who I think it was the 80s when Burroughs came out with his cave revelations. And Dr. Mahan who was a real-life PhD-holding anthropologist and was a museum curator and whose papers and possessions are at the University of Georgia at Columbus. He totally believed in Burroughs. He totally believed in the cave. And he apparently had visited it repeatedly. Now, for what it's worth, Dr. Mann could have been wrong. He could have been conned. This was a few years before he died, and he was up there in age. But he he vouched for Burroughs. So, for what it's worth, that yeah. that happened. Yeah, yeah. And it is also, uh, I think, worth pointing out that the location had never been disclosed by Burroughs. No, they kept that real secret. Yeah. Yes. So, I started looking into this because uh, a couple weeks ago, I caught you on Conspiranormal. And I believe it came up in the interview and I had sent you a message. And Yes, thanks. I was, uh, I was, I've always been curious about it, but not. I've never really done much research on Burroughs. What I knew is very limited, but I, I was just drawn because of the location. And I thought that it, the cave itself was in Richland County. And then I stumbled across just a couple of nights ago, preparing myself for, for this episode, this, this other cat down in Southern Illinois who does not believe that Burroughs was a good man and uh, thinks that he basically plundered this tomb and started selling all these artifacts for next to nothing because at the time no one was willing to pay big money for them. I mean, there could have, you know, a lot of forgery and things like that. And then there's a lot of criticism because it doesn't fit the historical narrative. Oh, it doesn't at all. No, No, it's totally alternative. So there's this there's this guy, his name is Harry Hubbard, down in southern Illinois. I forget exactly where he is, maybe around Harrisburg or something, but uh he has wrote a couple of books. He's been on uh a big 
like History Channel, Discovery Channel show. I can't remember which one it is. But he is a series of videos on YouTube that go back into the 90s talking about the things that were found there, the research that he has done. And he believes that the cave was actually the tomb of Alexander the Great and his people, which... We talked a little bit about this before we started. It's hard to digest. It's hard to wrap your head around. He that gives is a huge <laughs> assertion, you know. Oh, absolutely. Which I'm not saying isn't true, but it is, you know, quite something. Um, so he ahead. alleges then that the artifacts would have been brought with that group of people coming up the Mississippi River from around Cuba and into the Ohio and eventually into the forest of southern Illinois. And it's interesting. You know, I, I need to dig more into it and, and get my own opinion on it and dig into Hubbard a little bit because he's a little out there. Um, <laughs> he's a lot out there. <laughs> I it, Just because I'm bringing his name up does not mean that I am endorsing him in any way from what I've oh, yes, gathered about him. Understood. Yeah. Just just a discussion. Yes. Yes, yes. absolutely. Well, but it's, it's worth noting because he has information that we didn't know about because he's not calling it Burroughs Cave. He's calling it the Illinois Mystery Cave. I need to go back and find the video that I had stopped on because I was trying to triangulate where the location of this cave is because in one of his videos, he shows a map and uh, describes the topography and the elevations. And I was trying to match it up with an actual map of the state and trying to figure out where this cave is. And I was close, but I've forgotten all of it. So I have to go back and do it again. Yeah, I wasn't taking notes. I was just curious. Like, maybe I can figure this guy out. You know what I mean? Actually, he's not quite what I would consider in Southern Illinois. I mean, he is. It's Southern Illinois. But to me, Southern Illinois kind of uh, represents the Shawnee Forest. That's what I think of. If If I'm in conversation and I say Southern Illinois, I mean the forest down to the Ohio. That's And the Shawnee Forest is just massive. This guy, I remember now, I don't know the name of the county and I live in the state, but it's uh, around Salem, Illinois, which is kind of cool too, just the <laughs> with the naming of, of things and how these things go in circles. Kind of a synchronicity, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's around there somewhere in that county, in the southern part of that county. And I, if I find the map, I will share that with you. And if, if I can figure out exactly where we think this cave might be, he hasn't said to my knowledge outright, this is the location of it. But he has went there with a camera and showed the entrance, but never so far that I have found filmed inside the actual cave. There is a map of the cave, which I believe came from Burroughs originally. This this Hubbard guy might have also made a map of the cave. But the thing with Hubbard is he's also really into hollow earth and aliens. And that was like a weird twist as I'm digging into this Burroughs cave and Richard Burroughs being this uh, master forgery artist and conning all of these people and uh, buying artifacts that he made. I just think maybe Burroughs found stuff. It didn't make any sense. And he made up his narrative of this underground trading site from Native American times. And I think maybe the Alexander the Great story is not so crazy in context. That's very interesting. That And yes, though I'll be honest, if Alexander the Great is buried there, that's his tomb, that's still less weird than Hollow Earth and Aliens. So, <laughs> you know, you know the, we know Alexander the Great existed. And, you know, we know he conquered 
lands and things. Yeah. If you can, what what does he say about the Hollow Earth and a connection with aliens? So, based on my limited knowledge of this guy and his work, he has found artifacts that depict alien imagery, non-human, humanoid figures uh, in drawings and carvings on these artifacts. And I haven't made the connection exactly with the hollow earth things. I assume it's more in the same vein, but if it's not connected to that particular cave, it is a part of this guy's research and work because he's very well versed in it from what I've seen. He has a lot of really old maps. He references a lot of really old, like, Books that have not even been translated to English, because I tried looking for a few of them. And he seems like a really smart guy. He knows his history very well. Ancient history say, very well. You say translated from what? To what? Latin. Oh, okay, okay. Wow. It's a big book. Um, anyone who's into Hollow Earth would probably laugh at me for not even remembering what it's called or who the author was. But it's it's a multiple-volume collection of hollow earth information from ancient rome i believe and it's just from looking at it that night trying to find copies of this book there is not an english translation there are a couple of others maybe german and french or something something like that some other european language but i'd love to read it if i could understand what it was just <laughs> you know yeah I mean? absolutely wow that, cuz that that's is, a long time ago that's you know yes. a lot of people chalk up the hollow earth to jules verne you know that yes, yes. that's sort of the the gestation to central of the earth exactly I mean, it's classic yeah. You know, so those of us who entertain the idea of the possibility of there being an inner earth or a hollow earth, we kind of get lumped into falling for it, falling for the stories of Jules Verne. When I don't think that's necessarily the case, I confess to have never even read the classic work of Jules Verne, known as Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, so you can't fault me for that directly. However, I did spend two years trying to find the location of the hollow earth entrance in kentucky so you know what i mean (laughs) i don't make light of that at all i personally have difficulty with the idea of a full-on like jules verne style inner world inside what is supposed to be a molten metallic core to the earth yeah but at the same time the massive cavern systems that we know exist caused me to not dismiss the idea that certainly there could be a lot going on under there. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very realistic. Yeah. Like I said, you know, there, there are distinct ways to follow the, the story. You know, there's the whole entire inner earth thing. There's the pocket theories. There's, you know, we go back to, again, my favorite, the non-physical communication and visitation to these places. And, Just let me interrupt here for a moment, but to me, that would make so much sense because it correlates, at least vaguely, with the idea of the center of the earth being Hades and being a place where shades, where the dead live. Yeah. That would kind of make a lot of sense. And that seems to be a recurring idea across different cultures. Correct. That when you die, you go underground 
to the center of the earth. And I don't so much mean the Christian hell, but more the pagan Hades where everybody's down there. (laughs) Yeah. Not just bad people, it's everybody, you know. Yeah, but it's also important to look at that as it doesn't seem to represent a cave setting. You know, you think into the earth or under the earth, you think it's going to be dark and rocky, completely enclosed, no natural light. But when you look at specifically um, into actual Hades as a uh, Greek mythological figure, as the brother of Zeus, the ruler of the underworld, the Zeus of the underworld, he exists in a place where the souls of the dead are judged for their actions, and they are dispersed to different areas which are not caves. It's open fields. It's centers of beauty and joy for all eternity. And none of them have ever really been depicted as being underground. It's like it's sort of the Christian concept of heaven, right? That there's beautiful skies and green grasses and pastures and fields and rolling hills. And to take that approach and make that connection to the underworld of Greek mythology and Egyptian mythology and Nordic mythology, and like you said, there's all these different, you know, pasts, but to take that leap and say that this is the same thing implies either a non-physical or an entire hollow interior, which would have a source of sunlight, which would mean an inner sun as well. Yes, the inner sun that I don't claim to have the esoteric knowledge to (laughs) really talk intelligently about, but it keeps coming up in other things I read about all the time. Yeah, And yes, you'd need that light source that somehow makes it all possible. Exactly. Or we're all spirits and we're on a different vibration, we're on a different phase and we're in the Elysian fields and it's beautiful because we're not in our physical flesh and blood bodies. That's the way I lean to man. And that makes, that makes quite a lot of sense to me. Exactly. Speaking of aliens and underground civilizations, are you at all familiar with the Shaver mysteries? I am not well enough to sit down and rewrite the entire story. I've read a lot of it. I haven't read it all. There are weird things that come with that um, because there are people who claim to encounter these same creatures, these Darrow. I did an episode, I think it might have even been the very first episode of my show, where we talked about different things, aliens underground. And the Shaver mystery, of course, comes up easily in topic for discussion. There's this guy, he has since passed away, he had a YouTube channel, he was from Texas, and he told this story about a Darrow coming to him and trying to mind control him, and this Darrow is scared by some other entity and flees, and he didn't know what it was he was encountering. He had never heard of the Shaver mystery, never read it, but he drew a picture of the entity and described it. Uh, exactly. It's Darrow. And he came later to find that this entity had already been described and, and written about, you know, through Ray Palmer and amazing stories and the Shaver mystery. So it's weird, you know, that other people would be encountering these things. Well, that's, that's the thing that sticks with me that Ray Palmer is the publisher and what's his name? Shaver here is, I just looked it up real quick. Richard Sharp Shaver. Yeah. Um, that can't be his real name. That's his Sharp Shaver. Yes. Dick Sharp Shaver. <laughs> can't be. 
1945, he publishes his first story. It makes the leap from amazing stories, which is just straight science fiction. It doesn't purport to be real into Fate magazine, yeah. which does purport to be real. And I could totally write Shaveroff as just a crazy guy, which is dismissive and, and, you know, not a good thing to do. But I could say, that, look, this is just fiction. Okay. Except other people started writing and saying, yes, I had the experience too. And I was taken underground. And yes, these things come out of the ground. And yes, they mind control me with beams. And other people report seeing the Daros and, and the Taros. There are the kind of good guy entities. Mm-hmm. And other people experience this and report it as real. And that's how it kind of comes into existence and, and builds up steam because people are saying this actually happened to me. And that was pretty amazing, you know, in my opinion, you know. Well, you know, I always felt that way too. And I don't remember if it was um, Nathan Isaac or someone else I had heard talking about this, that people with schizophrenia, one of the most common themes that they have is that they believe that themselves or others are being mind controlled by robots or devices underground. And that sounds dismissive as well. But if you approach schizophrenia as, which has been documented, exactly the same under an MRI as being on LSD, and you look at schizophrenia as having it is not so much something that is wrong with you, but having it is not having a filter to filter out all the static that everyone else filters out the same way. And you're picking up signals from other things, uh, other entities, other planes of existence, and you're not able to discern one from the other. And you can't make up your own reality the way others do. You know, it's just, it's a correlation, you know, that maybe these people are picking up on this stuff and it does exist in a way, you know, that maybe there aren't Darrow and Tarot under the earth in Georgia, but there exists a plane of reality that we as a well healthy minded group of individuals don't recognize but these people can because they don't have the same filters in place i think that makes a lot of sense it reminds me of where we used to be as a society with our understanding of autism and that we used to just look at it as a disability instead of a a difference a neurological difference different but not better or worse, just different. And maybe in the future, people who have schizophrenia, it won't be as disabling because we'll be able to understand it better and they will be able to like better interpret all the information they're receiving. Yeah. Because maybe they're just receiving way more information than us in the so-called normal population. And if you're suddenly fed all this information and you have no context for interpreting it. You have no context for putting it into your worldview. It would be, you know, it could be devastating. Absolutely. That you know, yeah. Um, if suddenly you could hear like all the radio stations that are broadcasting all at once, I mean, you'd be in a bad situation, but that doesn't mean radio isn't real. And it doesn't mean that if you have a means of controlling it and understanding it, then it doesn't have to be a disability. It could be something positive. I'm going to, I'm just going to speculate that I'm probably not the first person to think that. And that some of the people who thought of that work for the government Hmm. and, you know, that, and this is something that, you know, 
um, Nathan Isaac has talked about and, you know, others have talked about that the government seemed very interested at certain times in schizophrenic people mm-hmm. and how to harness them. How can we weaponize whatever you have and, <laughs> you know, and study them in a way that they weren't doing that because they were particularly interested in the mentally ill. They were doing that because maybe they're receiving something. Maybe we can use that to hear whatever you're hearing. That comes up again and again. It's got Go built-in connections to MK Ultra. I mean, that's been yes. declassified that they were using LSD as a means to induce the state in people at way crazy high dosage levels. And even if it's not somebody who has schizophrenia, it's a normal person, and you load them up with an just insane amount of LSD to see or what happens. Level, yes. yes, or or worse. <laughs> and we know now that being on LSD is the same as schizophrenia. They are throwing people into this existence now that they have schizophrenia suddenly and not growing up with it and developing with it. And I can't imagine being in that state. It would be horrifying to all of a sudden, you know, you go from like the equivalent of an eight track tape to now you have satellite radio and you're hearing all the stations at once. Yes. Yes. It would be, it would be like that. It'd be really difficult, if not impossible to keep your, if you, if you weren't insane before, you would be after. Oh, yeah. It's wild. It's wild to think that we, as as people, could do that to another person. Like, it, it's just, it seems to be the most immoral and unethical thing I could think of. Because... Yes, yes it is. You know, like, you could argue, and I would not disagree, that just killing people for no reason is a bad thing. But I would almost venture to say that being put through a program where they're pumping you full of LSD might be worse than being killed. I mean, I can understand the mentality of a agent who, for reasons of a mission and national security, has to shoot somebody in the back of the head. I can get that mindset. But to dose somebody with psychotropics at huge levels and then methodically study them uh, no, no, that's some Nazi shit, man. Yeah, um, it's pretty messed up. You know, you know it but is, it's really interesting it now because you look at the way that the United States is approaching psychedelic use now. And I think in the next 10 years, we're going to be having this conversation in a different way because they're starting now to realize things about the benefits of psychedelics on mental health, not just LSD, but mushrooms specifically psilocybin is just growing i mean there are several places now where it's legal to to use uh you know just as an adult on the street like buying a beer and i think that when the big pharma companies figure out a way that they can put their name on it and make it valuable to them that will see a lot more treatment through psychedelics and it will be interesting to see the effect it has not just on people with schizophrenia but people with depression and people that have different mental health levels and how it changes the landscape of all this weird shit that we're into i really am curious for the future you know a, a, a world where people are taking mushrooms every day instead of Xanax and how those people are able to make connections in a different way than what we have. And I, I'm curious if it will lead us to 
a sort of artistic and spiritual renaissance in a way. I think it would be just huge for civilization right now at a time where everything is just awful to suddenly find yourself being able to find creativity and find peace and rest and be able to communicate in ways that you haven't been able to before. I think that would just be amazing. I, I agree. I'm actually quite familiar with what you're talking about because, and I'll just, you know, full disclosure, I have no problem talking about it. I have severe PTSD and I get treatment through the VA. It's not authorized yet, but it's come up that psychedelics, specifically mushrooms, are being used experimentally to treat PTSD, as well as depression and alcoholism. Yeah. And that that is a real thing, and they are pursuing it. And it wouldn't surprise me if you're right that in 10 years from now, that's a mainstream treatment. Now, I, I would only do psychedelics in a controlled environment with like a psychologist holding my hand. <laughs> there's, there's just a lot of stuff I don't want to see. I think that in the future, I, you know, I'd be even open to doing it myself. Um, sure. And it's certainly, I mean, I think it holds a lot of potential for treatment. Well, that's and, the way they're marketing it as well, too, now, is that it's being recommended or suggested that it could be beneficial when applied to traditional therapy. So, I think that is going to be the groundwork you know, that we'll see first. There will be someone with you making sure that you feel safe and secure, You know, that someone that's there to help you process things now that you have these other tools at your disposal. So, I think that's the way it'll start. Yes. And I, I think that, well, I think they're doing that already for like... The last couple of years, maybe just very, it's very low key and it's experimental, but they are doing test studies mm -hmm. to, and they're getting great results yeah. from everything I've read. They're getting great results. So yeah, I see that as really being the wave of the future. Who would have thought that <laughs> <laughs> the creatures that were born of the planet Earth could be treated by natural, clearly biological substances that the Earth also provides, as opposed to crazy chemicals cooked up in some government lab. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, you don't, you don't have to go in full-on Gaia hypothesis to say that, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe we should do the natural stuff first, you know? Yeah, right? We've, we took the wrong, the wrong door a long time ago. <laughs> but you see, the stockholders don't make any money off of, yeah. Yeah, no, know? that's it. That's it, we exactly. We patent it, you know? That's what I'm saying. When they find a way to do that, when they find a way to put sodium bicarbonate in a tablet with mushrooms, and they can say, this is our formula, this is our patented trademark now we can sell it and they will yes that that sounds about right <laughs> all of our archived episodes are available for free right now at patreon.com slash beyond the patio or on our youtube channel follow us on social media give us a like if you don't mind and if you have anything weird happen to you and you want to share the tale hit me up at paranormalpatio at gmail.com